Welcome to the podcast of the American Psychoanalytic Association. I'm your host, Dr. Gail Saltz. I'm a psychoanalyst and a psychiatrist, and this is Psychoanalysis and You. Kimberlyn Leary is a senior vice president at the Urban Institute, a DC-based research and policy think tank. She is also associate professor of psychology at the Harvard Medical School and an associate professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and was a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. She currently teaches executive education classes in adaptive leadership, negotiation, collaborative problem solving, and leading teams. Interestingly, Dr. Leary is also a senior advisor and past executive director at the Center of Excellence in Women's Mental Health at McLean Hospital, and is a faculty affiliate at the Program on Negotiation at Harvard Law School and at the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard Kennedy School. She is currently a senior fellow at the Bloomberg Center for Cities at Harvard University, where she is developing a book project. From 2021 to 22, she served as a senior policy advisor to the White House Domestic Policy Council and as a senior equity fellow in the Office of Management and Budget. And in both roles, she worked across federal agencies to implement President Biden's executive order on equity. From 2014 to 15, she was an advisor to the Obama White House Council on Women and Girls, where she helped spearhead the Advancing Equity initiative to improve life outcomes for women and girls of color. At the American Psychoanalytic Association, she was scientific program chair and is currently an advisor to the Holmes Commission. Her current research and scholarly work is centered on leadership, negotiation capacity, equity-focused change management, and large-scale systemic change. Welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Gail. It's such a pleasure to be here. So. Unusual for a psychoanalyst, you have served in two White House, well, unusual for many reasons, which we'll get to, but you have served in two White House administrations. So could you tell us a little bit about what role you played in each the Biden and Obama administration? Sure. So it was really the honor of my life to work for both the Obama White House and the Biden White House. It's a it's an amazing privilege to actually be able to uh, have a perspective, which is what you get in a place like that, about the innovation that's going on all across this country and just incredible work that in communities and cities on behalf of so many different problems. And in those roles as advisors, you are working with a team, everything is done as part of a team, and you have often a very large portfolio. So, for instance, in the Obama White House, my portfolio was enhancing life outcomes for women and girls of color, but that meant looking at school discipline and its disproportionate impact on girls of color. That meant looking at girls in the juvenile justice system. That meant looking at girls who were interested in STEM education and young women who wanted to have STEM careers and broad issues of economic prosperity, access to reproductive health care, et cetera, et cetera. So the role of an advisor is to work on behalf of your team with key constituencies, often from outside of the White House as well as teams within, to try to 
take the policy that we have and make sure it's coordinated and to think about and work with others on how to deploy solutions as best one can in all the ways that government permits. So in many ways, you were, particularly you, were innovating for change. That's correct. And so in your role as a psychoanalyst, or let me say, are there things about being a psychoanalyst and the principles of psychoanalytic thought that helped you or that you use to innovate for change? I certainly hope so. You know, I think we talk about bringing our whole selves to work. And certainly my whole self includes being a psychoanalyst, being a woman of color, a black woman, being of a certain age and background. But as an analyst, I would say we all learn how to listen and the importance of listening, that listening is an action, it's an activity, and it's often a gift because so often we don't listen as well to others as we might wish, especially in busy context, in organizational settings, in government, etc. We talk past one another. So as an analyst, the ability to listen and the ability to be curious and the ability to be able to stand in a witnessing stance with respect to pain is something that we do all the time in the consulting room. And it's also what you do, I think, whenever you're trying to drive change on a problem, whether it's on your team, in an organization, or at scale in a large system like a government system. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who right now might feel that there are plenty of people in Washington, in in politics, who could benefit from psychoanalysts in in more active ways, <laughs> let's say. But there is a lot of strife and there is a lot of conflict. In addition to listening, are there other – did you sometimes hear things and think, I, I see dynamically what's going on um, and it makes me approach this in a different way? Well, that's a – that's a kind of a tough question to answer because the answer is, of course, yes. But that was just in the back of my mind mm -hmm. as I was listening or writing or conversing with others. Because it's not really fair, of course, to be thinking about the dynamics of others when you haven't been given the permission to really engage in that particular way. That said, you know, there's some basic principles that from psychoanalysis that make sense in almost every organizational setting. The first is that there's, there's continuity if you know all the missing pieces, right? That if a story doesn't make sense or it's not the story, the outcome that you want, what's missing from that story? Who's missing? And that would be a public policy question. Who's, which communities are missing? But what's missing from the story itself of how we work on policing, for example? What's missing from how we are responding to kids post-COVID who have a variety of challenges, both educationally and with their mental health? The what's missing, who's missing, and if you put it together, what kind of coherence does that have? And what does it mean to engage people in a team, on the phone, on the internet, in something that we would recognize as problem solving? It's not one way anymore that the analyst has a solution, which she delivers. It's not one way from just a policymaker to a community with a solution. The best public policy out there comes from working closely with communities, listening to what's on their minds, in their hearts, where the problems are, and most importantly, listening for their solutions. There's expertise out there, 
And as clinicians, we've learned that our patients are also centers of expertise. And it's the conversation together, it's the collaboration together where something extraordinary potentially can happen. So one of the largest problems, really, um, were recently, I, or I should say, again identified, because it really isn't recent, is the problem of diversity and inclusion. And this is an area that you have you worked on both in the White House and in other caps that you wear at, at Harvard and so on, but also within the American Psychoanalytic Association. Can you tell us a little bit about the similarities, the differences, and what kinds of, I guess, concepts you use to approach this problem? Sure. So I've been really privileged to play a role, a small role, but in the conversations about diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging here in the American Psychoanalytic Association, in the institutes I've been a part of, the institute where I was trained at Michigan, and then the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute where I sit on the faculty and am a member of the board of trustees. The first thing I would say is that for early on in my analytic training and in my analytic career, I realized that there was tremendous value in what I was learning that was sort of the standard curriculum. But it didn't account for things like race, intersectional identities, racism, although there were people like Dorothy Holmes certainly writing about it and many, many others. And so I think there's I branched out a bit. I started reading social psychology. I started reading about implicit bias pretty early on. And what I came to realize is that we have tools that might help us to diversify our organizations, and that's important. But we also can use bias, if, if there's a, a tool that tells us it's there, to rethink the architectures of how our organizations work. In other words, if we know that there's bias in how we promote and uh, recruit people, well, we can think about what are we doing in, you know, can we recruit people in a different way? Can we change the number of people on the committee? Can we ensure that there are diverse people on a com committee? Something like that. But then when you think about equity, equity can mean the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. You're trying to bring equitable mental health care to communities or deliver equitable education. And that kind of equity has a very long trajectory. We think of it in terms of centuries and decades. And we look at even the work of trying to implement an executive order, a mandate from the president about what his federal agencies will do as really taking years and years to show its impact. That's a perspective that we also have in psychoanalysis. The change does not happen overnight, no matter how much you want it, and that we have to understand, think about, and address all the blocks and obstacles to change that we encounter, whether in a person or in a system uh, or in the community that system is trying to serve. And in the Homes Commission, you uncovered issues that are going on where we have not implemented, where we have not even started to make the changes. Can you tell us a little bit about what needs to happen and, and how can that happen? So one thing I'd like to say is that there are a number of communities, psychoanalytic communities being one, but not the only one. I also sit on the board of the governors for the Folger Shakespeare Library, specialized communities that were moved to action after George Floyd's murder. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they weren't thinking about diversity or equity or inclusion before, but they were moved to a different kind of action. And I would say that the work that the Holmes Commission has been entrusted by this organization to do was to discover challenges, right? Given a a mandate to find the problems. And among the challenges, you know, the initial report has come out, but the longer one will come out later in the spring, is that there are generational differences in how we think about equity and belonging, whether we recognize a racial enactment as that, or we're inclined to think of it as something else. And that we've also, as a profession, maybe had a default to treating a candidate in particular, or an applicant as well, if they're talking about a challenge that they're encountered because of racism or ethnocentrism or you know, anti-LGBTQ bias, which still exists despite changes to the organization, we've treated that as something else as opposed to an important piece of information that we in our organizations, however uncomfortable, need to embrace, understand, and then figure out what we're going to do in response. So did you find that there, the generational differences are such that senior people in leadership positions are least likely to address head-on ways to rectify the differences? I would say that that's the general finding, yes. And it's not surprising, really. You know, when you think about our young people, uh, candidates, people who want to be candidates, people who might become candidates, when they've grown up in a very different world where diversity, equity, and inclusion is considered a normative platform from which to to address in they, they've grown up reading uh, diverse authors taking up uh, political theories and ideologies unless they're in the state of Florida where right. there's some uh, some challenges there about to turn back the clock exactly yeah. exactly so they bring a different skill set and they bring a different level of comfort with their own intersectional identities and a willingness to raise a problem And I would say that for those of us who are older, depending on where we sit in our lived experience, we may or may not have that same expertise, comfort, or sometimes, frankly, willingness to learn. And I think it's the willingness to learn that's really, really critical. And that requires, we were just talking about that in the presidential symposium, a willingness to learn does require people to tolerate feeling unskilled for some period of time. During that period, you're learning. And that's something what, that I imagine as as an instructor in leadership is something that you might you might even address that it's right. very hard for leaders, people who do consider themselves senior, yes. to sit right. in that anxious, right. unknown spot. Because people are looking to them for answers, mm-hmm. right? When you're in a leadership or what we might call an authority role, people are turning to you for cues about their behavior. What should they do? And so if you don't have an answer, it can feel, and sometimes is the case, that you're not providing what my colleague Ronnie Heifetz calls the services that people have hired you to provide by electing you or appointing you to the role that you have. So it's really a challenge, I would say, for leaders to recognize that they have to learn and that they have to sometimes renegotiate that their leadership role means they will be sponsoring learning, including in themselves, not just delivering solutions. Because most of the time, for most of the big problems, 
the authority figure leader doesn't have the solution. What they have is the ability to bring people together, to innovate together. That's a lot of what good leadership entails. So it's framing, as you instruct people in, the, in these areas, it's framing what the role really means or should really mean. Right. You sit at this interesting intersection. As you mentioned, you're a Black woman. You are a more senior woman. You're at Harvard. You've been, you're at the White House. Was at the White House. Was at the White House, but in the Biden yes. administration, which is now looking at the possibility because of a case brought vis-a-vis Harvard, of overturning affirmative action. Yes. Could you say a little bit about your, you know, what your thoughts are about the implications of that? Um, Because that really ripples for not just at colleges where this has come up, but in all kinds of arenas, including our own association. Very likely it will have ripple effects if the Supreme Court takes the action that we expect. So, you know, the reason I became fascinated by government and systems is that I saw the potential in them. Not me personally. I did a master's degree in public administration, so I was taught how to think about it this way, uh, in addition to my clinical training and analytic training. But systems can deliver big impacts. If you can drive an innovation through a large system, you can affect and impact so many more people than you could one-to-one, or even one small organization in a community. If we think about the affirmative action, it has been one way in which we've tried to deliver diversity and equity through a system. And it's not surprising, then, that the forces that oppose that, and there are many, would look to the systems and try to stop that process because it's an equally efficient way to drive their agenda home. I'm not a lawyer, so the ins and outs of of the ruling, I mean, I listen to the oral arguments, but what I feel about it is such grief because it will be a very long time, I fear, before those gains can be uh, recouped in other ways. I also think that the backlash, if you will, toward a lot of the equity work that has been, and the innovation that's been in play for now several years in a concentrated way. I mean, something like $200 billion worth of commitments uh, were made on behalf of equity by America's corporations Mm -hmm. and trillions of dollars by the government to ensure that the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act would have, and Justice 40 would have impacts in the most disadvantaged communities. So you've got these systems that actually do what we want them to do, but there is a narrative in this country and many others that it's a fixed pie. And if we right historical wrongs, that we're somehow taking something away from people who are here and now, when in fact, there's a lot of benefit for all of us if we live in a functional multiracial democracy. If we're not living in a functional multiracial democracy, we have many more challenges ahead. And I fear that's what we're seeing. So I'll just ask with your analyst hat on, thoughts about how to approach what seems like a currently a vicious cycle of just as you're bringing up, if the system regresses, right, understandably, those who are being denied 
will appropriately be angry. And the angrier they get, the more it seems frightened, resolved, you know, and inflexible the people they're angry at get. We seem really trapped in this. I mean, this is not the first time we're we're here, right? At the at this right. cycle. We we seem just are from an analytic perspective, are there ways to understand and and perhaps educate the whole in some way that interrupts this, as you said, this idea that it's a finite pie. And if you have, then I don't have, and I will defend my having yeah. till the end of time. Well, you know, there are many analysts who've worked in this area of Vamic Vulcan being one. There's uh, Jerry Fromm and his, some of his colleagues at Austin Riggs. They're the folks who are working on climate right now, including uh, Maggie Klein, I think, who are saying we can look at these big, hairy problems and we can recognize that there are human beings who are afraid, who are impinged upon, who feel that they are living in a scarce world. And that's very important to keep in mind. You know, when we look at how elections are decided in this country, it's what, 48% believe in a sort of progressive-ish agenda, and 47, 48% believe in a conservative agenda or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's a small number of people who actually wind up seemingly small constituencies who make the determination about who our leaders will be and thus what our laws will be and who will sit in the judiciary. So the challenge is, you know, where do we put our energy? Do we try to change minds that may not change? Or do we work at the margins and figure out who will support us on one set of issues but may not on another? And how can we begin to understand at a very deep level the threat that others see in the very same intervention that to me looks like a solution and one that's long overdue. So it's really about these deeper levels of understanding and helping, as you're saying, I guess, the group that's willing to be a listener to understand. I think that's part of it, yeah. I mean, you could have a more articulated psychoanalytic analysis of any political controversy. And, and I think that makes sense. I find a lot of that work quite compelling. It's not the work I tend to do. But I think that understanding that, I guess this is the fact that I distill from psychoanalysis that I do bring into public policy, which is that people actually do things for reasons. They just, they do not do things just because it occurred to them on Thursday at four in the morning. There is a story behind the perspectives that they have. And we may not like the story, and we may not really want to listen to the story, but there is a story there. And sometimes it's by the willingness to at least listen to enough of these stories to understand why your solution is never going to work for them that gives you then another platform for trying to problem solve through a different way. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. And now for some Freudian quickies. You sent in your questions for an analyst, and I grabbed an analyst with an answer. 
How and why do many people try to prevent awareness of the climate crisis? And what can we do to get people to take the threat more seriously? Oh, because then we'd have to give up the things we like. <laughs> I mean, we all like to think we're invested in anti-racism and climate activism, but we don't want to give up our comfortable suburban lives. And I understand that. I think what's ironic is some of the areas that have the most natural beauty are the most resistant to understanding the repercussions of climate change. I think if you have the privilege to be out in the wild, out in nature, it probably is a way to feel more connected to climate as something that affects all of us. I mean, of course, especially people who are less privileged and more exposed, but I think if you want to reach people with wealth, you have to kind of get them in the fields. It's been coming into my practice more and more often, the climate crisis. I've even heard recently that there are specific climate crisis therapists that focus only on that. And I guess I try to tend to think about it symbolically also. Obviously, there's the there's the real issue that's happening in climate crisis, but how do we then listen for what people are saying that we can parallel with. They might actually be talking about something outside of themselves in the crisis and to bring that in and to make that connection for them in a way that maybe doesn't feel like we're hitting them over the head with it, but maybe opening something up for them to have maybe a deeper understanding of how this might actually be impacting them without them realizing it. How and why do many people try to prevent awareness of the climate crisis? What can we do to get people to take that threat more seriously? I think that the propensity for denying how big and how complicated and how helpless we feel calls for protection of understanding it, knowing where to start, knowing you know where to intervene. So sometimes it becomes easier not to think about it. And I think as psychoanalysts, our job is to help people think about what they don't want to think about. So it's definitely a big part of our, our work, whether it's directly done and talked about or not. Wow, I love the way you asked that question, which is about preventing awareness, which in our psychoanalytic terms is about dissociation. And I think that says most people know that it's real and that these issues are facing every single one of us, some more than others, but whether we don't have the bandwidth to face it or we, you know, we all have different reasons for dissociation, but I think just calling it out like that is to say that it's there and we have the tools within analysis to work with dissociation and, and part of the point is to become more aware of the things we need awareness of and clearly the climate crisis is something we do need more awareness of so that we can do what we can do. If you have a question, really any question for a psychoanalyst, please send it to APSAPodcast at gmail.com, and we will try to feature it in a future Freudian quickie. For more information about the American Psychoanalytic Association, go to www.apsa.org. Till next time. Thank you for listening in today. Here at Psychoanalysis and You, 
and we at the American Psychoanalytic Institute hope to introduce you to the many ways psychoanalytic thought affects the world around us, and especially you. Please leave any comments and requests for us at APSAPodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. If you found this episode useful, please share this podcast with a friend or colleague. And we will be back next month with another episode of Psychoanalysis and You.